The China Econ Talk newsletter. I spend hours every week looking for the most interesting Chinese language articles on tech, policy, and economics, and then spend more hours translating them for free. Check it out at chinaecontalk.substack.com. There's 3,000 of you listening to this show, but only 1,000 have subscribed to the newsletter. So sign up and make my day. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. Maoism, A Global History, is the best book I've read this far for China Econ Talk. It takes you from the origins of Maoism in Yan'an all the way to present Maoism in India and Nepal. It's deeply researched and tightly written, one of those books where you can't skip a page because there's always something new and interesting on everyone. It's also very funny, a hard thing to pull off when you're talking about violent revolution and occasional mass murder. So to walk us through Maoist ideology and its surprisingly impactful global legacy, we have with us today author Julia Lovell. Julia, congratulations on the book and welcome to China Econ Talk. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. So when I first started reading your intro, I wondered why this book had never been written before. But particularly as I got into the second half, where you go country by country into all these places that have to various degrees caught the Maoism bug, it became very clear why. Uh, so before we get into the content, could you talk a little bit about the research process? The first thing to say is that in quite a few ways I chose a bad time to write this book, though actually it's not become a better time. The best time to write it would probably have been in the um, uh, in the noughties, so the first decade um, uh, of this century when the PRC was experiencing a really unprecedented period of archival openness and particularly notable was the opening of the archives of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And to the best of my knowledge, this was a unique event in global communist history, the first time that the Ministry of a Communist State had declassified part of its archives while the Communist Party in question was still in power. It's true the declassification stopped at the end of 65 before the Cultural Revolution, but this limited opening did illuminate parts of uh, many previously obscured foreign policy issues, so Vietnam, the Bandung Conference, North Korea, so there were huge insights to be had. But then this archive was quite rapidly shut down after 2012, 2013, for a variety of political reasons, uh, although the official explanation was systems upgrade. In general, it's become a lot harder to research within China, the Mao era, um, under Xi Jinping. Uh, Xi Jinping owes much of his political prestige to his revolutionary bloodline as son of one of Mao's own comrades. And foreign policy of the Mao era is a topic of special sensitivity because one of the keynotes of the Mao era, especially from the late 1950s to the early 1970s, was so-called revolutionary diplomacy. So the CCP's desire to lead and instigate the world revolution. And China's rulers don't like to dwell now on the country's desire to lead the world revolution under Mao because it doesn't fit with contemporary rhetoric about China's peaceful rise to superpower status. And it also doesn't fit with protestations that other countries have no right to comment on or interfere in China's political affairs uh, because China 
uh, <laughs> claims that it's never interfered in any oh, other sure. country's affairs. So the revolutionary diplomacy of the Mao era, including sponsoring insurgencies, especially in the developing world, really inconveniently puts the lie to that claim. Um, it was also a bad time to write it because as a result of the political climate tightening up, uh, witnesses to uh, the Mao era uh, became much less willing to speak to foreigners. Uh, and in any case, a lot of the archival material essential to writing the book will never be declassified unless the CCP fell from power. So there's going to be a huge number of important materials in the Central Committee archive, for example. Sure. Um, so as a result, there was no single centralised archive for the book. And so research for this project was was a truly global and time-consuming process. So I had to access sources in Chinese, English, Bengali, uh, Vietnamese, Mongolian, Shona, French, Spanish, Italian, German and Norwegian in archives and libraries across Asia, the Americas, Africa uh, and Europe. I think this is one of the reasons why the book has not been written before because the archive is so dispersed and so global. Were you surprised with just how much uh, Maoist influence you ended up uncovering all around the world? In some ways, yes, partly because for various reasons that we can discuss later on, this history has been substantially sidelined and even written out of general global histories of the Cold War. I think one great example of this is the importance of Maoist influences on the counterculture rebellions of Western Europe and the US during the late 1960s and early 1970s. Of course, there were hugely important sort of rebellious libertarian influences on these protests, but a certain reading or misreading of the cultural revolution was also um, hugely impactful uh, on those rebellions and protests. So Julia, I want to come first to your, your, your first chapter, which I thought was a really creative and interesting way of exploring just what Maoism meant, particularly domestically in China. And the way you frame it was by taking these uh, famous Mao phrases, the revolution is not our dinner party, practice is the sole criterion of truth, women can hold up half the sky, expose errors and criticize shortcomings, and then give a bit of background as well as um, history into where those phrases came from and what they meant for the movement and the CCP and the ideal and the ideology more broadly. Um, so maybe let's just run through a few of them to give us a bit of background and, and your sense of what role they played. Let's start with um, the revolution is not a dinner party, my personal favorite. The quotation revolution is not a dinner party goes back to a moment in Mao's career in the midst of the revolution of 1927 at this point, the Chinese Communist Party is in an uneasy alliance with the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, um, and has been since 1923. And the objective of this alliance is to oust warlords who are controlling important parts of China and to create a unified uh, revolutionary national government. Uh, but the two parties are pulling in different directions. The Kuomintang, the GMD under Chiang Kai-shek, are always far more naturally and 
comfortably allied with establishment, moneyed uh, interests in China's cities and China's countryside. Uh, whereas the Chinese Communist Party is far more fixated on more radical goals of wealth redistribution, uh, social and economic justice. And Mao writes this turn of phrase at a, uh, a moment which he finds particularly exciting to his own political development. It's when he is uh, witnessing a peasant rebellion in his native Hunan in South China in the spring of 1927. And he is really witnessing the power of China's underclasses to violently sweep away established uh, forces and power in the Chinese countryside. And this is a very, very important moment in the history of Chinese Communist Party when Mao acclaims the power of political violence to transform China. So the very early Chinese Communist Party from 1921 to 1927 is more of a somewhat loose coalition of study cells led by urban intellectuals. And in 1927, with the sort of rise of violence and a really horrendous purge, which is unleashed on the Chinese Communist Party by the Kuomintang, you see the passing of that earlier generation of leaders to a new generation of tougher army men with a deeper knowledge of China's rural grassroots and men who are, you know, sort of ruthless about using violence to achieve their political aims. And, and Mao is the perfect example of such an individual. So violence ends up being a real centerpiece of, of Maoist ideology, it seems. Yes, and it's important also to remember what sort of a man Mao was in this early formative part of his political career from the late 1920s onwards. You know, he was a man of the army. That's how uh, he made his way to a senior position within the Chinese Communist Party. Obviously, thinking back to um, Soviet precedents, to Soviet analogues, both Lenin and Stalin also worshipped the use of military force, but they were less closely connected with building an army and the workings of the army at such a formative stage in their political careers. Uh, another of the very well-known soundbites of Mao that uh, travelled within China and far beyond China uh, is women can hold up half the sky. And because of this phrase, um, Mao was uh, was, was, was viewed very positively, was admired, for example, by second wave feminism uh, in the United States and in Western Europe in the uh, early 1970s. Um, and I wanted to talk about this quotation because it really highlights the contradictoriness, the paradoxes of Mao, um, that he was able to come out with this kind of feminist rhetoric. I think arguably you know, none of Mao's global peers had such an openly egalitarian agenda, but his own 
practice towards women was uh, uh, was was disturbingly different. He was a serial womanizer. He treated the many women in his life absolutely terribly. He. I mean, you, uh, you wrote that he. Um he had uh, venereal diseases, but he never showered. He instead decide, He instead had some horrific quote, I think you had in your book, about how he just uses young virginal women to clean his um, uh, infected private parts. That's, and, and that was one of the many shocking details about Mao that came to light in his doctor's extraordinary memoir, The Private Life of Chairman Mao. Okay, so the idea of phrases in general, I mean, this is not necessarily something that contemporary Chinese uh, leaders really quite have a knack for. Where did this come from, from Mao? And and can you talk a little bit about the importance of these sound bites as a way to um, spread the message both domestically as well as internationally? I think that's a great question because Mao's talent for sound bites really did have an impact on the globalization of his ideas and his practice. Uh, I did quite a lot of oral history interviews with former and still Maoist activists all around the world for the book, and many of them specifically uh, mentioned Mao's power as a stylist, you know, his ability to come up with these short pithy, memorable turns of phrase. Uh, for example, in the Black Panther movement, um, the, the Little Red Book was used quite widely as a means of political education because of its, its interior design, that it was a series of short quotations uh, that could be quickly read and quickly discussed. In terms of where this talent comes from, Mao, between the early 20th century um, and the uh, late 1910s, he puts together quite a, a, a varied uh, Western and Chinese education for himself. He's fluent in some aspects of Western philosophy, although he, he doesn't learn foreign languages. But he's also deeply fluent in, deeply familiar with the Chinese classics as well, especially essays on military strategy, above all classic works of Chinese fiction. Um, so he's, I think his style can be seen as coming from that voracious reading. He surrounded himself with books, you know, all the way pretty much up to his his death, you know, eyewitnesses who were, he, he worked from his bedroom, he had a sort of huge bed, um, and he would sit in bed and just surround himself with books, most of them in classical Chinese. So, you know, you have this quote from a collector of Mao merchandise in 2014 that you interviewed saying that Mao is greater than Genghis Khan because he was a poet, which I just think is a, a fantastic, fantastic line. It is perhaps this perplexing, inconsistent mutability in combination with memory of the political and military success of Mao that has given the political line which carries his name its potency, persuasiveness, and mobility. Somehow, Maoism is the creed of winners and insiders, of losers and outsiders, of leaders and underdogs, of absolute rulers, vast disciplined bureaucracies, and oppressed masses. Frustrated with its contradictions in its muddying of tidy disciples, Christophe Boussillier, authority on Maoism's journey in Europe, goes so far as to say, quote, Maoism doesn't exist. It never has done. That, without doubt, explains the success. Uh, care to elaborate, Julia? Uh, what I was trying to get at in that paragraph um, is that 
Maoism, although it has this singular name, it doesn't actually correspond to a single unitary phenomenon. Um, so it's a set of ideas and practices that is living and breathing that has been translated and mistranslated across different decades and across many different regions. And above all, it's a set of often very contradictory ideas. And this is no coincidence because Mao himself was a great admirer of the idea of contradiction. Uh, he saw contradictions as possessing a kind of primal energy. Uh, he saw them as something which drove history on. So uh, when there were contradictions in his own ideas or, or where he perceived them around him, he tended to embrace them. They didn't, they didn't bother him. Inconsistency didn't bother him. So I remember when I first came to Beta and I was wandering around the sort of garden north half of the campus, all of a sudden I stumbled across Edgar Snow's grave, uh, which is not something that you would expect to be, uh, you know, given such a central place. But after, after reading this chapter, I understood just how important he and his, his book, Red Star Over China, was to the, the evolution of the CCP. So you say that it's difficult to overstate the influence across space and time of Red Star Over China. So let's dive into the book. First off, what is the book itself like to read today? Read on face value, it's a rather charming book to read. Edgar Snow has a lovely, relaxed style. He has a great eye for landscape uh, and for character. There's a nice zingy sense of humour to the book. Um, uh, so there are still many. I'm sorry. Aspects. Let me. I, I did this. I did this backwards. Let's let's go to. Um, uh, first, we should talk about how he how he writes the book. So. Um, you describe how Edward Snow was sort of bumbling around as a second-rate journalist in hopes of a scoop, and all of a sudden, he meets someone who can give him this inside track into real China. So who was uh, Song Qingling, and, and what was the broader strategy at the time for the Maoists in dealing with foreign reporters back in the pre-Civil War period? Sure. Well, first of all, I would say that, that Edgar Snow isn't really a second-rate journalist. I think he's established himself um, as a reporter of, you know, great credibility and independence. He's travelled around China um, extensively. Um, he's willing to uh, criticise both his fellow expats. So, you know, he's gone on uh, gone on record as, as crit in, in criticising their very isolated lifestyle, isolated from sort of ordinary Chinese people's lives. Um, he's also been very, very critical of the nationalist government uh, which has been in power since 1927-1928. So, you know, he's very much established himself. But uh, it is true that he's looking for a scoop uh, that will really make his name globally, that will be a subject for um, a, a book which will, you know, garner him uh, more attention than isolated articles. And so in the early 1930s, he encounters this woman called Sung Qingling, who is the widow by that point of the first president of China, Sun Yat-sen. Um, and Sung Qingling Sung Ching is uh, 
a, a very remarkable woman, uh, deeply cosmopolitan. So she was schooled first in Shanghai uh, and then in the United States. So she has uh, perfect English. She's a very uh, cultured woman, um, sort of keeps a beautiful house, sort of loves opera and dinners and, and books and so on. When foreign literary celebrities come through Shanghai, where she lives, they're sure to call in on her, sort of George Bernard Shaw and others. She also has a very important role in Chinese politics at this time. So she has a close family connection to the nationalist regime. Uh, her sister, Song Meiling, is the wife of Chiang Kai-shek. And oh, that, sure. gives, that gives uh, Song Qingling an element of untouchableness. Um, so in a climate where Chiang Kai-shek and his thugs are cracking down on any whisper of leftist ideology after a bloody purge of the Chinese Communist Party in 1927. Uh, Song Qingling uh, is sort of allowed to carry on in Shanghai because of this family connection. And Song Qingling after 1927, while her sister goes with the nationalist side of Chinese politics, uh, Song Qingling uh, leans heavily towards towards the Chinese Communist Party. She spends a period in Moscow um, after, uh, after, after, night, after the, the things fall apart uh, in China in 1927. And by the 1930s, she's become a very strong backer of the Chinese Communist Party's both undercover operations in Shanghai and supports them uh, in their rural bases. So for example, uh, she keeps, uh, uh, she makes sure that they can have radio contact between the rural bases uh, and uh, the cells of the party in Shanghai. Uh, she also um, gives a very large amount of her own personal savings to the Chinese Communist Party. But her role in this particular incident is as, a, I, I think probably her greatest value to the Chinese Communist Party is as a really appealing, attractive fellow traveller. So she herself uh, actually is not allowed to join the Chinese Communist Party until she's on her deathbed in the 1980s, uh, precisely because the CCP sees that she has greater public relations value as someone who is sympathetic but outside the party and therefore seeming more objective and more sort of reliable um, yeah, as a supporter like of the party. That, that it's sort of like that CGTN host, right? Who's, you know, not a party member. So, you know, this is like a, this is like a line that she used with the, with the Fox, the Fox host a few weeks back. Right, right. I, uh, for, forgive me. I, 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 I missed that. I missed that story. Um, uh, but the CCP lifted from Lenin something called the United Front Strategy. And that strategy, you still see it at work um, outside China at the moment. You see it in uh, New Zealand. You see it in Australia. And the principle is that the CCP should work with and work behind individuals and groups in society that are not part of the Chinese Communist Party in order to convince people who are not part of the Chinese Communist Party, who are opposed to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that, uh, the, the, you know, that, that, that the Chinese Communist Party is supported by 
good people. And so Sung Ching Ling is not of the CCP, but she is given the job to recruit uh, useful foreigners to the CCP in the mid-1930s. So Mao, uh, who at this point is based with the CCP in the northwest uh, near Yan'an, sends out a request to Shanghai that he needs a Western doctor to look after him and he needs a Western journalist who can get the story of the Chinese communists out to the wider world. So this is a context in which the communist state is being blockaded by the nationalists. The nationalists are determined to finish off the job they started in 1927 and really eradicate the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so there's a kind of material blockade. It's very hard to get supplies into the Chinese communist state, but it's also very, very difficult for the Chinese communists to make a case for themselves as political um, so they really need a well-connected, fluent journalist to portray them in a sympathetic way. Uh, and this is where Song Qingling uh, recommends Edgar Snow to them. So after a big adventure where he takes, you know, boat, train, rail, hiking, ferries or what have you, Edgar Snow arrives. What was what was his experience like? How was he treated? He was treated very well as far as one can make out from the portrait that emerges in Red Star over China. He was given a wonderful warm reception by the government of the Chinese communist state uh, when he arrived. So he was effectively given a, a kind of state leader treatment himself, which he wrote affected him very deeply. Actually, he was very impressed. He was very taken by this reception. He was given fantastic access to the top leadership of the CCP, um, above all to Mao, who gave him a series of interviews late into the night, which generated some 20,000 transcribed words, which then became the basis for a very famous biographical portrait of Mao that Edgar Snow put together in Red Star over China, and which actually aspects of it still remain kind of our main source on uh, Mao's early life, on Mao's childhood, on his relationship with his father, and so on and so forth. The communist state in northwest China was uh, a very poor area, but the Central Committee made sure that Edgar Snow did not want for anything materially. Um, so, you know, all the sort of creature comforts that he could reasonably expect uh, were his, you know, sort of towels and hot water, um, lots of food. Um, he wasn't allowed to pay for anything. Uh, so he really was overwhelmed with hospitality and I think you can see his uh, sort of sense of gratitude for that hospitality come through the very warm way that he wrote up uh, his experiences of the Chinese Communist State in Red Star. Sure. So I love I love how he he apparently uh, Juda, the founder of the PLA, found time to play basketball with him, which he describes as a rather quote quote wistful game, whatever that means in whatever um, that uh, means you know 1930s American. Uh, you know, uh, NBA analysis. So <laughs> the, uh, so the idea, uh, uh, you know, Edgar Snow, he paints this idealized portrait of Mao as a Lincoln-esque figure, um, which is, you know, really far-fetched to think of from, you know, contemporary glasses. I mean, we have like the tall and skinny versus short and fat. We've got like melancholic and brooding versus like 
creepy dictator self-assured. And then we have like surrounded by sycophants with purges versus this whole team of rivals idea. Could you talk a little bit about the sort of like American revolutionary glasses that Edgar Snow brought to his depiction and how that uh, helped the book resonate, I imagine, abroad? Yeah, I think you've picked on a, a really revealing turn of phrase, which um, shows that Edgar Snow is trying to translate Mao into American, if you like, into an American frame of reference. And that idea can be applied to other aspects of Snow's portrayal of the CCP and the Chinese communist state in the Northwest. He really seems to be at pains to portray them as people who are really in tune with, you know, certain values in the American dream. You know, they're relaxed, uh, easygoing, but also serious, idealistic, patriotic, open to other influences and ideas. You know, they're open to being taught how to play uh, Snow's card games. And Edgar Snow's portrayal in this way was internationally very, very impactful. That uh, you know, Edgar Snow's write-up of Mao really did transform Mao for the first time into an international political personality. It set up a channel of communication between Snow and the White House with Roosevelt. So, you know, in terms of how the Americans perceived the Chinese communists at this time, there was a clear impact. And some of the uh, State Department officers who later made their way to Yan'an during the Second World War, they had read uh, Snow's very positive account of the Chinese Communist Party. So it's hard to imagine that they themselves were not affected and predisposed by this very positive account. What lessons do you think contemporary foreign correspondents should take from the uh, Edgar Snow experience? I think there are still certain continuities between the Edgar Snow experience and contemporary Chinese official hospitality. Um, uh, you know, my reading of far more recent documents about tours uh, which are arranged by Chinese officialdom around parts of China um, suggests that there is still a uh, hope that by sort of overwhelming visitors with um, hospitality and a sort of rather controlled sort of access uh, that you can win positive write-ups. So this is an idea that uh, is tried out with snow, but you know, continues through the Mao era and the post-Mao era as well. So let's come now to the idea of uh, brainwashing, this idea that was born, um, at least in the Western mind, out of the Korean War. And this guy, Edward Hunter, who you write, tapped into a rich stream of anxiety about the expansion of Chinese communism. Yes. Uh, this anxiety about Chinese communism had a variety of causes. Of course, the immediate most important trigger was the success of the Chinese Communist Revolution in October 1949. But the following year, American and UN forces uh, came up 
directly against uh, the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese Army, uh, or it was renamed for uh, for the purposes, um, in the Korean War. And so this collision between the Chinese army and American and UN forces sort of really cemented these anxieties about what Chinese communist power in the world might look like. So we, so we have the Korean War, and at first the Americans are doing pretty well, pushing back the North Koreans, but all of a sudden there is this uh, you know, Chinese human wave tactics that ends up capturing thousands and thousands of American uh, American POWs. As the war winds up, the, the POWs are given a choice of whether to stay in China or to come back to the U.S. And as you write, a handful of them actually decided not to be uh, not to be repatriated, which is something um, that really shocked the American uh, public. And to explain this, uh, the manifestation of like, you know, not loving, you know, mother, mother liberty or what have you, uh, you have uh, this guy, Edward Hunter, who comes onto the scene. And he describes this idea of Chinese mind control as, quote, witchcraft with the incantations, trances, poisons and potions with the strange flair of science about it all, like a devil dancer in a tuxedo carrying his magic brew in a test tube. Um, where, where does this idea come from? It's, it's partly produced by the broader climate of McCarthyism. Uh, so uh, the United States is having its own anti-communist witch hunt and this creates a climate of susceptibility to uh, fears that there is communist um, uh, subversion all around the United all around the United States um, but these these fears become cemented by the events of the Korean War first of all you actually have a physical collision between um, uh, US soldiers and Chinese communist soldiers um, and then as you say you have this, event which is truly uh, shocking to popular and you know, political American consciousness that out of these 7,000 some uh, American POWs who were captured by North Korean and Chinese forces uh, between 1950 and 1953, around 20 when offered a choice about repatriation, they choose not to come back to the United States but instead to go to China. And the explanation uh, that is given for their choice is that they have been brainwashed, they have been remoulded some way uh, by uh, Chinese communist interrogators uh, in these, uh, Chinese communist interrogators uh, in these camps between 1950 and 1953. And this creates this idea that uh, communist China is to be feared not only as a hostile military power, as it has shown itself to be uh, during the Korean War, uh, but also um, it possesses because it possesses, uh, at least as the um, security services in uh, the United States uh, argues, um, China seems to possess a kind of new unbeatable weapon for mind control, um, an ability to carry out brainwashing, to you know take people apart mentally and put them back together. And uh, you know these 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 fears are quite 
clearly expressed in a whole sort of swirl of articles um, and cultural productions in the US throughout the 1950s, and the most famous of which is the film The Manchurian Candidate. And um, the, the plot itself is rather complex, but a central idea of it is that an all-American boy, an all-American um, GI, captured by the Koreans and the Chinese of the Soviets during the Korean War, has been uh, uh, secretly reprogrammed, released back into the United States, um, and then becomes a sort of weapon for uh, a weapon weapon for destruction of American democracy. So this is sense that um, with Frank Sinatra starring, guys. Indeed, no less, no less. I showed up in China in June 2017, not knowing much more than Ni Hao. Two months later, I was HSK 3.5, confidently having hour-long conversations and traveling alone in rural Yunnan. By the time I started my graduate program that fall, I wasn't the foreigner who forced Chinese groups to switch into English. In my program, there were plenty of students who came to China with no Mandarin background, but none of them got to near the Chinese level I did, largely because they didn't have the right environment to invest in the basics. So where did I make all this critical progress? At CLI in Guilin, one of the few places that teaches Chinese right. In four hours of daily one-on-one sessions with engaged and flexible teachers, and in an environment that supports immersion outside the classroom. Unlike in Beijing or Shanghai, you'll be forced to use your Chinese in daily life, and won't fall into a friend group of expats. Guilin isn't your average Chinese small city either. As a tourist hub, it's developed enough to provide you with whatever creature comforts you want, from upscale gyms to chill cafes and fancy malls all while being surrounded by gorgeous mountains and next to no pollution. CLI isn't just for Mandarin beginners, it supports all levels of learning. It's not just for students either. In fact, its median age is 28. To learn more, go to studycli.org and enter offer code CHINAECONTALK for $100 off. Support for this week's show comes from Brattle Street Educational Counseling. Stressed out about college applications? Brattle Street Educational Counseling can help. They provide guidance throughout the whole process and offer workshops for students looking to work in small groups at a rigorous pace. The workshops include hours of one-on-one attention, from college essays to standardized test prep to interviewing and applications. Brattle Street offers support for any student. Brattle Street B R A T L E Street dot com, helping you get where you want to go. Bringing this a little back to the present, lessons for, um, you know, lessons you might take away for just how the U.S. ended up misinterpreting uh, this uh, this brainwash attempt. You write that basically the, 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 the level of Chinese expertise in this time period uh, was really um, was really decimated by McCarthyism because anyone who's remotely affiliated with policies uh, that quote unquote lost China um, just by virtue of having contacts in the mainland lost their roles. So people who you know spoke Chinese or had who had spent time in this part of the world ended up not getting not getting the ear of senior leadership. Yes, and I I think though that the that there was that local very traumatic effect on that generation of wartime State Department Chinese expertise in the US. I would say that this episode has a much longer afterlife, which has been, you know, brilliantly explored and uncovered both by journalists and historians of uh, post-war 
United States. Um, so I'm thinking here um, of Jane Meyer's work, um, that she's the New Yorker journalist who wrote uh, a very disturbing and eye-opening book called The Dark Side, uh, which was, you know, where uh, the justification and the ideas for the suspension of important legal constraints against, for example, torture during the war in terror uh, came from. And uh, she and other cultural historians um, have argued that a lot of the thinking about the sorts of very aggressive interrogation and also torture techniques which were used by parts of the American security establishment uh, during uh, the war in terror went back to assumptions about Chinese mind control and the need for the US to uh, develop alternatives to combat this Chinese mind control of the 1950s. So this set of ideas, they have a local, this set of assumptions about China and, and quote unquote brainwashing, they have a very local significance in the 1950s, but they also have a much longer range impact on the on the CIA, uh, the security state in the United States. Horrifying. Um, another another thing to thank Mao for. Mm. So, um, so, so coming up to chapter four, uh, World Revolution, you have this quote, uh, where you, where you know we we've gotten through the fifties, um, but we're now into your uh, what you phrase as high Maoism. Um, so high Maoism, you write, is showcased a particular form of internationalism, universal in theory but parochial in practice. It made a utopian case for the global relevance of Maoism while engaging in petty doctrinal disputes with the Soviet Union. It made a bid for a world role while destroying China's diplomatic relations with almost every part of the world. It shouted about universal solidarity while asserting Mao's planetary leadership. It was often more about domestic amor propre than international realpolitik. In broad strokes, how does Mao's conception of, of what world revolution should look like in his image play out? Uh, well, I think without understanding Mao's deep emotional attachment to the idea of generating world revolution, without taking this on board, we can't understand the standout events of what I call high Maoism. So this is Maoism of the late 1950s and uh, 1960s. Um, this is the period uh, where Mao uh, is sort of unleashing his most radical ideas for transforming China, uh, mainly by mobilizing tens of millions of Chinese people to achieve his political experiments. Maybe we can start by talking about the rivalry with the USSR and how okay. this uh, fed into this, um, uh, I guess, what ended up becoming a bit of a frenzy. Mm. More than a bit of a frenzy. So Mao's bid to lead the world revolution begins with uh, him picking an increasingly cantankerous quarrel with the Soviets. So after Stalin's death, in 1956, Stalin's successor, Khrushchev, makes his secret speech in which he denounces Stalin's tyranny um, and his mass murders during the terror. And Mao, for a variety of reasons, is very angry about this. First of all, he's angry because Khrushchev has not consulted him in advance that he's going to do this. But he's also angry because Mao himself, although he had personal quarrels with Stalin, uh, Mao was also a deep admirer of key aspects of the Stalinist 
project, um, for example, uh, sort of radical mobilizations to sort of create far-reaching economic and political transformations, breakneck collectivization uh, to achieve sort of crash industrialization, uh, and of course the personality cult. So the secret speech in 1956 is the beginning of uh, what historians then and now call the Sino-Soviet split, and this is you know often a very uh, sort of hard to understand phenomenon. It sort of consists of you know the Soviets and the Chinese hurling doctrinal insults at each other, but the the intellectual political nub of it is that Mao feels that after Stalin's death. Uh, Khrushchev is losing, the Soviet Union are losing their revolutionary bite. Uh, they're making nice with the uh, United States. They're talking about peaceful coexistence and they're turning their back uh, on the idea of a kind of violent, tumultuous world revolution. Um, so the Chinese Communist Party under Mao decides that you know they're going to fly the flag of global insurgency for the world revolution. Um, and this generates um, a sort of long series of insults to the Soviet Union, which the Soviet Union uh, responds to often in kind. Um, and you know without uh, taking on board these events, you know, there are many uh, aspects to the political reasons for the Cultural Revolution uh, that we can't understand. So these set of events, uh, although often sort of opaque and, as I say, sort of bizarrely sectarian, um, are deeply productive of history within China and also beyond. Yeah, just the, the, the level of, of pettiness I just find hysterical. You know, you know, Mao in 1957 goes to visit Khrushchev. He sees a Swan Lake. He says, why don't they just dance normally? And then he walks out. Um, 1956, Segan wants to bring the two countries together. Mao replies that he he pledged to denounce the Soviets for 10,000 years, but as a special concession, he would reduce that time period by a millennium. But further than that, he could not go. Mm. So, I mean, he was it clearly like relishing in this and, uh, you know, seeing it as a way to put his um, his stamp on global affairs. That's right. And I think we can't understand Maoism, Mao's ideas and Mao's practices without, of course, taking into account Mao's own personality. And this comes back to another deep contradiction within him that, you know, on the one hand, he was determined to build a you know one party militarized state uh, that worshipped its supreme leader. But on the other hand, you know, throughout his career and particularly towards the end of his life, he consistently saw himself as a rebel, uh, as an outlier, as someone who made trouble. Uh, you see this very strongly in the Cultural Revolution, but you also see it in the way that uh, he uh, tries and often succeeds to uh, provoke the Soviets. Let's talk a little bit about the Friendship Hotel, which is one of the, the ways that uh, the Chinese sought to spread revolution by by bringing uh, revolutionaries all around the world into uh, into Beijing and kind of giving them the, the crash course in Maoism. So you write that in this hotel there were there were melancholic Chilean bolero singers, Colombian actors, and the doctrinaire British Maoist Elise Fairfax Chomoly, who allegedly danced in jubilation at the burning ruins of the British legation when it was torched by the Red Guards in 1967. So what was going on with all these foreigners running around China, and how did the 
Chinese think of them and what was their experience like? Uh, yes, I'm glad you mentioned Elsie Fairfax Cholmley, who to my mind has always sounded far more like a character from a P.T. Woodhouse novel than a Maoist. Um, first of all, these foreigners where they're, they're they're staying in the friendship hotel um from the late 1950s particularly early 1960s onwards um and the friendship hotel was originally built to house soviet advisors and technicians um and those are all pulled from china by khrushchev in 1960 so in response to that in response to the sino-soviet split mao and his lieutenants uh, want to create uh, Beijing but also training camps in South and East China as hubs for this diverse bunch of international rebels that you mention. And uh, there's, I think, an element of amour propre here, um, a bit of the old kind of tianxia zhuyi, you know, the idea of China as the centre of the universe, the centre of the world, or sort of in contemporary Marxist terms, as the centre of the world revolution. So drawing this global community of rebels sort of shores up China's own self-perception as this centre of the world revolution. So there's an element of revolutionary vanity there. Uh, but I would also say that um, the, uh, the creation of the sort of the donation of all these training facilities and training resources uh, is also very, very productive of uh, global insurgency, especially in the third world. So I'm not saying that everybody who attended political and military training in China at this time uh, went on to make revolution in their own country. So, you know, absolutely some of these individuals flaked out of the revolution. So I'm thinking, for example, of uh, this Venezuelan guerrilla I encountered who left China after a couple of years in the late 60s because he couldn't locate a reliable supply of whiskey. So, you know, this is someone who wasn't about to follow through. Amadou of Niger, uh, as he comes to us down through the archives. So after his arrival, he informed the, the director of the state broadcasting administration that the Quran permitted him to have four wives. He had already taken three in Africa, but was reserving a spot for a Chinese consort and wanted to purchase one while in China. When the director explained that this would be impossible, an agitated Amadou protested that he was not asking for a handout. He was willing to pay for a woman. And that story comes from the uh, remarkable memoirs of Sidney Rittenberg, um, uh, who was an American who made his way out to the Chinese communist state uh, just after World War II um, and stayed in China until uh, 19, the 1970s, despite two very brutal periods of imprisonment. But just to, to talk again about the impact of these training opportunities. So, you know, as you say, there were uh, people who weren't really serious about revolution or necessarily serious about the revolution. But others who spent time in China getting political and military training in the uh, 60s above all, went on to lead insurgencies that changed the destinies of the countries in which they operated. So one example would be Josiah Tongagora, uh, the military commander behind ZANU's victory over southern Rhodesia through the 1970s. Uh, another example would be Abimal Guzman, uh, who as leader of the Shining Path, the Sendero Luminoso in Peru, directed throughout the 1980s a Maoist civil war that claimed almost 70,000 
thousand lives. So you know these these the, the, this, this 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 training, um, uh, it 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 could have a transformative impact on the lives of those who undertook it, and on the states in which they worked. Sure, you know there's a there's a there's also a history of the U.S. doing this sort of thing, taking um, you know mid-level officers and armies, uh, particularly in Latin America, uh, bringing them to the U.S. for a year as like a finishing program, as a fellowship um, to get a master's or what have you. Um, I remember visiting one of these. Uh, I think the Navy runs one in, in Washington D.C. and you know they have this like wall of fame of all the people who've gone on to be ministers. Um, but there's also you know a fair number of folks who ended up uh, you know turning out to be particularly um, uh, heinous uh, dictators. So you know there's a there's a there's a long tradition both in the West and the East of these sort of um, finishing schools. I guess like Yenching Academy, you can also call one of them. You know who knows if China will be happy or uh, unhappy with the way Jordan Schneider turns out. Um, but you know, I I'm, I personally am a uh, and, a, and a recipient of uh, CCP largesse. Uh, could I could I just come in with something on that actually? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, um, I'm really glad you made that point. You know, when we're talking about the ways in which China under Mao tried to export revolutionary, both in terms of ideology, but also in harder currencies of revolution, so things like money, weapons and training for global insurgencies. Um, it's, as you say, absolutely essential to point out that China was far from you know, the only game in town. They weren't the only country doing this during the Cold War. The CIA was doing it left, right and centre. You know, the history of the CIA, the history of US foreign policy is littered with sort of horrendous interventions, especially in the developing world. You can think about Iran, we can think about Indonesia, uh, Latin America and so on. So, so many examples. And of course, the Soviet Union were doing uh, something very similar through the KGB, through the International Department, through different organisations. So China is not unique um, in what it's doing. Um, what I thought was important to point out, though, is the story of what China is doing um, is far less well known than the story of what, say, the CIA did or the Soviet Union did. And that's why I thought it was just important to tell this story. So let's close with the uh, impact of the Cultural Revolution on the broader aims. You write that it was a set of events with aspirations to global solidarity and revolution, but which generated extreme brute xenophobia and authoritarianism. Uh, so explain this dynamic where on the one hand, you know, Mao wants to be a global revolutionary, but on the other hand, anything that's foreign could, could get you killed. Well, motoring the cultural revolution, both at home and abroad, was the idea that China was the centre of the world revolution. And this precious revolution um, had to be protected in China for the revolution uh, uh, inside and outside China to succeed. So, you know, the success of the Chinese revolution bore directly on the success of the world revolution. Um, but Mao argued that the revolution was always under threat from public and undeclared enemies, you know, above all Americans, the Soviet Union and people who are in uh, cahoots with them. Um, and uh, uh, during the Cultural Revolution, uh, the definition of uh, people who are conspiring against the Chinese and therefore the World Revolution was anybody who could be suspected 
of sympathy with what Mao had deemed counter-revolutionary, so uh, the old, uh, the foreign, uh, especially uh, Western or Soviet uh, influences, bourgeois culture, for example. Um, and so Mao and the Cultural Revolution validated ruthless violence against uh, such sort of international foreign cosmopolitan tendencies, precisely paradoxically in Mao's mind, to safeguard the international project of the revolution. Talk a little bit about the uh, impact that the Cultural Revolution had on Soviet policy. I already talked about the way there's been a there was a sea change in uh, Soviet domestic and foreign policy uh, in the late 1950s with Khrushchev hewing more to the idea of peaceful coexistence um, with the United States um, that you know the the he still believed that the communist model would be victorious but it would be victorious through persuading people of its virtues, of its superiority, i.e. through material development, rather than through um, sort of violent uh, military revolutions. But with one aspect of um, Mao's take on the Sino-Soviet split was to accuse the Soviets of being uh, quote-unquote uh, revisionists, um, of um, making up with the Americans and turning their backs on the world proletariat, especially in the developing world, the colonial world, or the sort of decolonizing or the recently decolonized world. And uh, in terms of its own um, publicity materials, Mao's China particularly targeted audiences in the colonial or decolonizing world. So Mao's so-called external propaganda uh, made much of the idea that only Mao's China was really the centre of anti-imperialism. Only Mao's China was really going to stand up to um, you know, the imperialism of American foreign policy. Uh, it argued that uh, the Soviets under Khrushchev had effectively become uh, imperialists in their own way. Um, and uh, the Soviets were um, extremely rattled by this sort of massive campaign to discredit them in the decolonizing world because you know both the Soviets and the Chinese and actually also the Americans they saw the decolonizing world almost as this kind of blank slate you know a host of new countries looking for political models and so each of the big powers in the cold war hoped that they could extend their hard and soft power by getting these new states to take up their own political models so when uh, the chinese under mao were so seriously bad mouthing the soviets um the soviets took this very very seriously and i think it's very plausible to argue that anxiety about looking insufficiently radical in the third world, in the developing world, really pushes a recalibration of Soviet foreign policy. So although sort of Khrushchev himself is moving towards um, a more moderate policy, because he doesn't want uh, the Chinese accusations to have any traction, um, uh, he and leaders after him tend towards being more expansive in terms of the aid and the support that they're offering uh, to uh, insurgencies in the developing world. The Vietnam War is a perfect example of this. It's, you know, Chinese rhetoric about the Soviets being revisionist and abandoning the revolution. Um, that triggers the Soviets to 
uh, donate a huge amount of aid um, and support to the to the to the Vietnamese communists. And so, you know, without that aid, it's hard to imagine that the Vietnamese communists would be able to uh, face off to the Americans in the, the the way that we did. And you know, everybody knows what a trauma uh, within sort of American foreign policy and American consciousness the uh, stalemate and failure in Vietnam uh, turned out to be. Julia, uh, see you next week for part two. Of- of the uh, Maoism, a global history deep dive. Looking forward to it. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices podcast, and of course, the Seneca podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Can't watch the